and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked to them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all. The Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you uh, that you've given us your word, and through it you speak to us and reveal your glory and your face to us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that this morning as we come before you, that, Lord, I would decrease so that you might increase, and that, Lord, you would feed us all with uh, the good news that we have in Jesus. And we pray this all in his matchless name. Amen. All right, so for the, the past few weeks at Grace here, we have been looking at the different names of God throughout Scripture. We've looked at uh, God with us. We've looked at uh, the God who provides. Uh, last week, Kevin looked at the Lord who is our shepherd. But this morning, we're going to be looking at one more name, and this name is unique for a couple different reasons. One, this is actually the, the first time that a list of God's attributes are given to us in Scripture. And they're given by God himself. This is not somebody else describing him, uh, but it's actually the Lord naming himself. And these two verses are also 
uh, the two most quoted verses in all of Scripture by the rest of Scripture. So it's throughout the rest of the Bible, these two verses in particular, because there's so much here. And lastly, and finally, what we're going to be spending most of our time on this morning is these verses also bring forth this seemingly impossible contradiction about the character of the Lord. How can he be both a God of love and mercy, but also a God of justice and wrath? And if you don't feel this tension yet, think about this. If, if God was perfectly merciful, that means he would free us from all of the consequences of our sin, and yet he would be unjust because our sin goes unpunished. And on the flip side, if he's entirely just, then he should fully punish our sins without any holding back. And if that was true, then he wouldn't be merciful. So how can both of these things be true? How can God be both a God of justice and mercy? And I think the the easiest response for us would be to just not believe what the Bible says. Just say, like, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. This, This can't be true. Or what I think a lot of us do is we simply pick which things we like. We pick the mercy because that sounds great. Or we pick justice because we think we're pretty good and everybody else isn't. But as much as we may want to ignore this or change this, we can't. We can't ignore what the Lord says about himself. And deep down, I think we're all asking the same questions of, is God really real? And if he is, is he really who he says he is? And can I trust him to be that way? For me, I was forced to reckon with this question 15 years ago on what was the darkest day of my life thus far. Um, Growing up, my best friend was a guy named Austin, Austin Wetzel. And Austin and I did everything together. We spent every day together. We went to school together. We both worked for his dad. Uh, We played baseball together. We went to church together. So I literally saw him every day. And um, when we were 15, we both went on a missions trip to Mexico with our church. And to help you understand where we were um, spiritually, which was very different places, I um, would have said that I was a Christian, but uh, deep down inside, I didn't really want anything to do with it. And I knew all the answers about God. I grew up in the church, but I didn't actually know him as my savior. And so I was going on this trip because I wanted to travel. I wanted to go to a cool, exciting, beautiful place. And quite honestly, the work that we were doing was just kind of a necessary evil to getting down there. Um, But in contrast, Austin, as a 15-year-old, was already sensing this call to ministry and maybe even missions uh, from the Lord. And he was going because he wanted to discern if this might be what the Lord was calling him to. So anyway, we went down there on a Saturday, and the next day, Sunday, we went to the church that we were helping to serve down there, and afterwards went out to the beach for lunch. And this was in Zihuatanejo, Mexico, which is the the southwest corner of Mexico on the Pacific. And all of us being from the East Coast, I'm from South Carolina, uh, waves don't ever get above like two or three feet unless there's a hurricane. And the the waves at this beach in particular were really big and beautiful. And so afterwards, we all went out into the water to enjoy uh, the waves. And it was my friend Austin and another friend of ours, uh, Chandler. The three of us were kind of hanging out in the waves. And out of nowhere, uh, these three huge waves came, one after the other. And the first one came, and it it hit me and slammed me into the ocean floor. It it knocked the breath out of my lungs. 
uh, and spun me around, and I tried to scramble back up to the surface, but before I could get there, the second wave hit, and the same thing happened. It threw me back into the ocean floor, um, spun me around. The best way I can think to describe it is it felt like I was in a washing machine, just being thrown about uh, by the waves with really no sense of which way was up at that point. Uh, and then the third wave hit, and for the only time in my life, I thought I was about to die. Never felt more powerless, and was completely out of breath, had no idea how many more waves might be coming, um, and just thought, you know, this is it. And thankfully, I made it back up and, and struggled back to the beach, and I got there, and I was exhausted and, and scared, um, but relieved. And I turned around, and my friend Chandler was right behind me, but Austin was not. And um, fast-forwarding a little bit, two days later, we, we found his body, and it turns out that his, his skull had actually been fractured from the impact on the ocean floor. And um, we didn't know it at the time. We still had hope that we might be able to, to find him out in the water somewhere. So the rest of that day, we ran up and down the beach looking for any sign of him. But I think deep down, we knew. We knew what had just happened and that we would never see him again on this earth. And so I remember uh, sitting on that beach sobbing once the realization finally started to hit me. And I remember cursing the Lord in my head, saying, there is no way you are real. There is no way that you are who you say you are if this just happened. If you let my best friend die on a missions trip of all places, there is no way that you are a God of love, and there's no way that you're a God of justice, because this is not love, and this is not just. And so the question I was asking that morning was, is God really who he says he is? How can he be if this thing just happened? Our text this morning gives us an answer to that question, but before we get there, I think it's important for us to look at the context of this scene, what has led up to this point of the Lord meeting with Moses because this is something we need to wrestle with. And it isn't just some intellectual curiosity that we can think about for, for fun, but this actually has deep ramifications for our lives. And as we see in this scene, the main problem is this problem of presence. How can a holy and just God be with an unholy and sinful people that he loves? So anyway, in the, the chapters leading up to this, this moment in Exodus 34, the Lord has just delivered Israel from Egypt. He's led them out uh, towards the promised land. He met them at Mount Sinai, where he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he makes what is called a covenant, a promise with them, where he says that you, Israel, will be my treasured possession, and I will make you into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But despite all of this, in the, the chapters... Um, two before this one, uh, Israel decides to take matters into their own hands because they don't really believe that the Lord is who he says he is. And they, they make the golden calf, if you know the story. Uh, they melt all their gold trinkets down and make this golden calf to worship. And despite Israel's just blatant unfaithfulness here, uh, and because he is faithful, the Lord uh, meets with Moses in the next chapter and he gives him a proposal. He says basically, you haven't held up your end of the bargain, but because I am faithful, I'm going to give you what I promised. I'm going to lead you, or I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to give you victory over your, your enemies, but I, my presence will not go with you because, uh, he says, quote, lest I consume you 
uh, on the way for your stiff-necked people. So essentially what the Lord is saying is, I can't be with you because I'm holy and just, and I must punish sin, and you are sinful and unholy. So I will give you what I promised, but I'm not going to go with you. And thankfully, Moses saw uh, the emptiness of this offer, and he says, basically, Lord, if your presence won't go with us, then do not, leave, do not move us up from this place. So Moses pleads with the Lord, Lord, stay with us, forgive us, uh, let me plead on behalf of these people. And thankfully, in the Lord's kindness and in his mercy, he agrees, and he, he says, I will go with you. And Moses then asks for an assurance of this promise. He says, Lord, like, let me know that you will be with us. Show me your glory, is what he asks. And what the Lord says next is essentially, I, I can't do that. I can't show you my glory because it would kill you if I did. So instead, I'm going to show you my goodness, is what he says. And which we see in this next chapter actually includes his wrath and his justice. So here we come to chapter 34, which is the passage that we read earlier, and back to this seemingly impossible, paradoxical character of God, of his justice and his mercy and love all wrapped up into one. So let me read that for you again. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So I don't know about you, but I, I like verse 6. I think we can all get behind that, where it talks about the Lord being merciful and gracious. And at first, those two words may sound a little redundant, like saying something is redundant and repetitive, Uh, but the the Hebrew actually helps us understand a little bit of the difference there. The word for merciful is the word rachim, which is also the same root word as the word for a mother's womb. And so what the Lord is is telling his people here is, I have this, this compassion on you like a mother has for her children. There's nothing that your child does to earn that feeling of love that you have when you look at them. It just is natural. You can't help but feel it. And so the Lord says, that is how I see you, my children. And he says that he is gracious as well, which essentially is this word that means an action taken in response to that feeling, that feeling compassion. So in other words, God not only loves his people as if they were his own children, uh, but, and he sees and he feels their pain, but he actually does something about it. He can't sit back and watch. Next, he tells us that he's slow to anger. It doesn't say that he never gets angry, but he says that he is slow to it. He says he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His love is loyal and unconditional. And he is faithful, he's constant, and he's trustworthy. And All these things spoke pretty clearly to the Israelites at that time, I would imagine, based on what had just happened. The fact that Moses and Israel still find themselves with the Lord in their midst is a testament to the fact that these things are true about the Lord. But this is where I think most people stop, or at least at the the very least want to stop when they quote this passage. They want to quote verse 6, but they don't want to open up the can of worms that is verse 7 where the Lord says that he will by no means clear the guilty. 
because God is just, as we see in the rest of Scripture, he says that he must punish sin, that the wages of sin is death. Sin cannot be ignored because it's actually the corruption of his good creation. And uh, I don't know, for parents especially, you've probably felt this way before, that when you really love somebody, when you really love someone, in particular your children, sometimes it demands that you get angry. Sometimes it demands that you uh, bring about a punishment because you actually love them. And the Lord's mercy with us often manifests itself in him letting us taste some of the painful consequences of our own sins so that we can be uh, awakened to the emptiness of them. And so here in these two verses, the Lord has revealed these two aspects of his character that seem to be contradictory, but really they go hand in hand. They enhance each other. The depth of his love is made more beautiful when you understand the depth of his justice and his wrath. But it still raises this question of how can this absolutely holy and just God be satisfied? How can he punish this sin that he hates so much? and also simultaneously hold us lovingly in his arms like a mother holds her baby? How can this just and holy God be present with an unholy people? Uh, theologian Philip Ryken, who uh, is the president of Wheaton College, said, one of the most painful effects of sin is that it separates us from God. Adam and Eve experienced this in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they sinned, there was a breach in their intimate friendship with God. They could no longer walk with him in the cool of the day. Indeed, they felt the overwhelming urge to run and hide. This is because they were alienated from God by their sin. And in the end, they had to be banished from the garden altogether. So I don't know if you've ever attributed it to this, but we have all felt that alienation ever since. It explains why we often feel so alone, even if we're surrounded by people that love us because we aren't living how we were made to be, which is in the presence of our loving creator. We were cut off from the very source of our life, and our only hope is that we can be made one with him again. And that, that phrase, being made one, uh, came into use back in about the 1300s in the English language, and it was used to describe two people who had uh, been in conflict but had then been reconciled after that period of disagreement. And uh, though they had been once in conflict, that's when this, this phrase, they're now at one, came into be. They'd been reunited. And this phrase actually led to several other words that you may or may not have heard. First is atonement, or at one mint, which means the restoration of a relationship. And another word, which you maybe have never heard before, it may sound a little funny, is atone maker, or an at-one maker, which is someone who makes peace between two parties. And so here, biblically speaking, this idea of atonement is the restoration of our relationship with the Lord. That's what we need, is we need to be atoned. We need to be made at one, because without that, we can't be in relationship with him. We need to be made at one with him so that we can be present with him again. So we need an atone maker, or what the New Testament later calls a mediator. And so this is where Moses comes into play. This mediator, which is, uh, the word basically means somebody who intervenes, someone who steps in the middle of these two parties. 
And in this passage, we see that Israel was spared because Moses stepped in between them and the wrath of God and pleaded on their behalf. And Moses is really the only one standing in between them and them getting what they deserved. But make no mistake, it isn't Moses who saves them and spares them. It is the Lord. Think of Moses like a lawyer, a lawyer who is pleading the case on behalf of their client. In the end, the lawyer can't actually save them. It's up to the judge to make that final verdict. And the judge in this case is the Lord, and his verdict shows us his character. And at the end of this chapter, after, if you caught it, Moses, it says he immediately bows down and worships when the Lord reveals his character to him. And he starts walking down the mountain, and when he gets down there to the bottom, it says he doesn't know this, but his face is actually glowing. His face is radiating with the glory of the Lord because he has just met with him. And I think what the Lord is doing here is he's showing this stark difference between Israel's chosen mediator, the calf, and his chosen mediator, Moses. This golden calf was inanimate. It was a statue. It couldn't move. It couldn't lead them to the promised land. It couldn't talk. And it certainly couldn't mediate on their behalf. And I think the, the ironic thing about it is it was created to uh, represent the presence of the Lord, to bring the presence of the Lord to the people of Israel. But it ended up almost doing the exact opposite, being the reason that the presence of God left them. But with Moses, here the Lord is saying, this is my mediator. This is who I have chosen to step in between my holiness and your unholiness. And I'm sending him back to you, and he's radiating with my glorious character. But as great as Moses was, he wasn't enough. If, you, if you're curious, I encourage you to read uh, chapters 32 and 33 uh, sometime today or, or later this week. But in 32, right after the golden calf incident, Moses does something actually really selfless and, and brave and honorable. He tells the Lord, Lord, let me bear the wrath on their behalf, on the behalf of Israel. But the Lord says something uh, pretty important for us to see here. He says, and this is uh, verse 33 in Exodus chapter 32, he says that the guilty must pay for their own sin. Your life is not enough for all of them. And so as great as Moses was, we need somebody better. We need a better atone maker whose life is enough. And that's where Jesus comes in. Uh, Our second passage this morning that we read is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in it, Paul tells us that Moses wore his veil not to actually mask the glory of the Lord, not to like cover up the, the radiating glory, but he says that he actually wore it as it faded away. He wore it so that the Israelites wouldn't see this glory fade away. Because the glory of the law, the glory of the Ten Commandments, the glory of Moses' mediator was glorious, and it was real, but it was temporary. It wasn't ever meant to be full and final. We learned that Moses actually had to continue, continually meet with the Lord uh, for his face to maintain this radiating glory. It was almost like you have to charge your phone every night. You know, it, just, it doesn't just exist. It doesn't always remain fully charged. You have to charge it. It's almost like he had to go and charge his radiating face every night before he went to bed. But more importantly, he was the only one who could meet with the Lord. It says that the rest of Israel had to watch as he walked outside of the camp to this tent of meeting where only he can meet with the Lord. And so Moses was a great mediator. 
He was the one picked by the Lord, and the Lord's glory shone in and through him. But Paul tells us that that glory came to have no glory at all because there is a permanent glory that surpasses it. And that glory is the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our perfect mediator. He is the one who came in his flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He came to do something. He came to step in between the wrath of God with his unholy people. He is love incarnate. And unlike Moses, his life is enough for all of God's people. And we see, we see the glory of Jesus, this kind of backwards glory, uh, this humble glory in his crucifixion account in Matthew. In uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So what's going on here? If you caught it at the end there, it says that the veil was torn in two. The curtain was torn in two. This curtain, if you don't know, in the temple separated what was called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was where the presence of the Lord resided, and it was protected by this curtain. Or actually, the people were protected by this curtain. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement, where he sought to make atonement for the people. And this curtain when Jesus died, was ripped in two. It was completely separated. It was removed. And unlike Moses, the wrath of God did come down on this mediator, on this atone maker, because his life is enough. And that darkness came down on Jesus. The judgment came down on Jesus. God's perfect wrath came down on Jesus. And what Paul tells us here is that when we put our faith in this mediator, in this atone maker, it says we don't actually need this veil anymore. We don't need to be protected from the holy presence of God because we are made holy in Jesus. And even more incredible, it says that we are his temple, is that his spirit, his presence actually lives in us. We have direct access to the Father through him. And it's, it's pretty crazy to think that we, since Jesus has come, have something that even Moses never had on this earth, which is this dwelling of God in us. And so the glory of this old mediator Moses pales in comparison to the surpassing and permanent glory of our new mediator Jesus. And what, what Paul tells us in this passage is that not only will Jesus' glory never fade like Moses' did, but it will actually be continually revealed to us. And this is made no more evident uh, than in another passage. Actually, right before Jesus died, he took a couple of his disciples up onto a mountain where it says he was transfigured before them. And uh, Matthew, the account of Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun, that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes were this radiating white light. But it's interesting, there, there are actually two other people that appeared with Jesus on that mountain of transfiguration. One was Elijah, the great prophet, and the other was none other than Moses. 
who it says both Moses and Elijah appeared in glory as well. And so what Paul is saying here is that until you see Christ, there is a veil over your eyes. There is a separating curtain between you and the presence of the Lord. But when you see Christ, when your faith and trust is put in him, that veil is lifted and you can behold the glory of the Lord. And not just that, he tells us in verse 18 that as we behold the glory of the Lord, something actually happens to us. It says that we are being transformed into that same image of glory. And so we don't just have access to the Lord. The curtain isn't just gone and we can't, it isn't simply that we can talk to him, as wonderful as that is, but we are actually being made to be more and more like him. And one day we, like Moses and Elijah, will radiate his glory in us. So friends, it is in the cross of Jesus, it's in the glory of his death and resurrection that the impossible is made possible, that the seemingly contradictory character of God, both his justice and his love and mercy, is solved. Because what happens is the Lord gets his justice. Sin deserves death, and death was provided. He demands payment for sin, but in Jesus, he actually provided that payment. Jesus' death simultaneously satisfies God's wrath and his justice, and his righteousness, and his holiness, and also his love and compassion. So what I want you to see is that God really is who he says he is, even if it feels like it it can't be true. And Exodus 34 tells us who God says he is. Again, it isn't what Moses said, it isn't what somebody else said or, or thought, but it is what the Lord says about himself And he tells us that he is justice itself. He is love itself. So if you don't think God is just or loving, guess what? You don't really get to make that call because he is those things. So I want you to, to ask yourself, what about the Lord doesn't sit right with you? What do you feel is unfair or unloving? What is unjust or unmerciful? Wrestle with him with that because he may surprise you. Or what are you carrying that you struggle to believe that God will actually do what he says he'll do? Where do you struggle to believe that God actually is who he says he is? Maybe it's not having the friends that you wish you had. Maybe it's being in a job or at a school that you wish you weren't in. Maybe it's still being single or childless. Maybe it's being stuck in a marriage that has grown loveless. Or maybe it's you or someone that you love getting a dire diagnosis. Or maybe it's feeling like the the anxiety and depression that you feel will never go away. So whatever it may be, do you believe that God is who he says he is? That he will do what he says he will do? Or do you believe him at all? Do you believe that he exists or even if he did, you wouldn't want anything to do with him because he's unjust and his ways are, are archaic and outdated and they certainly aren't loving. Or just look at the past few years with everything seemingly in the world falling apart all around us. How can he actually be who he is? How can what has happened be just and merciful and loving? But friends, I, I encourage you, look to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus and to that curtain being torn in two, because that is where 
the impossible is made possible. It is so unbelievable that we don't believe it. That's the problem. It is too good to be true. That's why we don't believe it. But the veil is gone and his spirit is in us. And really that's what faith is. Faith is believing that God really is who he says he is, that he will really do what he says he'll do. And honestly, I think we should rejoice that we don't understand him. We should rejoice that we can't fully comprehend the depth of his nature because that is how great he is. It, imagine it like this. If a five-year-old walked up to uh, Elon Musk, or a rocket scientist or somebody, and pointed to a rocket and said, there's no way that can fly. It's too heavy. There's no way. The, the scientist could try and explain all the physics of how it does actually work, but there's no way this five-year-old's going to understand that. Instead, I think a better thing to do would be just to say, hey, sit, see for yourself. It, it will work. And so going back to that day on the beach uh, 15 years ago, as I sat there cursing the Lord in my head, in my heart, uh, this young woman walked up to me from the church down there, and she barely spoke English, but she came up to me and she put her hands on my shoulders and she looked me in the eyes and she said, the ocean is strong, but my God is stronger. And I didn't believe those words at the time, but they stuck with me for the weeks and months and years afterwards, and I can still so vividly picture her face. Um, but even that week, I began to see that those words were true. Uh, in the, the search for his body, uh, a number of local people had helped with like fishing boats and government officials, and people kept asking, what is this hope that you keep talking about? What is this hope that you have? There is no hope here. This boy just died. And those led to conversations about the hope that we have in Jesus, that Austin was actually not sad at all. He was rejoicing the presence of his creator. He was where he was made to be. And we hope that we have the hope that we'll see him again. And, and later that week, when we had a, a memorial service for him down there, uh, eight of those people came and later gave their lives to Christ and got involved in that church down there. And I have no idea what the ripple effect of that has been, that those eight lives changed forever. And who knows how many other lives have been changed because of that. And I know at the very least, in addition to that, my life has changed. In the strangest way, in the most backwards way, that whole ordeal, the darkest moment of my life, was actually where I, for the first time, tasted and saw that the Lord is who he says he is, that he really is good, that he can turn this an unimaginably horrific thing into something beautiful. And so that's what I want you to know today, is that God really is who he says he is. And we have something that Moses and the Israelites didn't have, and that is that Jesus has come. That's what we've been celebrating these past few weeks, is that God has come. And it's in Jesus, it's at the cross, that God's mercy and his justice meet. It is there that the impossible is made possible. And it shows us that there is no contradiction in the character of the Lord. There's no contradiction between his mercy and his justice. But there is a sacrifice. There is our mediator and savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that in your hands you hold both justice and mercy. And that, Lord, at the cross of Christ, they meet, they are brought together. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us near to yourself through the blood of Jesus, our mediator, 
your very own son. Lord, would you give us the strength today and every day thereafter until you call us home to believe that you really are who you say you are and that you do what you say you will do. And there is no one else we can trust more. And Lord, it's in the name of Jesus, our mediator, our atonement maker, that we pray. Amen.